start investing some of your time reading a few books on marketing, on business negotiation, learn not only to speak the language of design and creativity, but learn to speak the language of business. That way, when you hear that a person is having a problem with customer service, you can say like, oh, I can connect that issue with something that I learned in web design and bring those two worlds together. When you can do that, you'll be seen as the expert, as somewhat of a creative genius because everyone else is like, well, why didn't we ever think of that? Welcome to episode three of season six of Live in the Feast. I'm Jason, aka Rez, helping you grow your design and development business by having a conversation with someone who's been there, had success, and built a business designed around the life they want to live. That's Live in the Feast. Today's co-host is Chris Doe. Chris is the founder of the longest running single-owned design agency called The Blind. He is the founder of The Future whose YouTube channel now has over a half a million subscribers. He's a passionate guy and very modest in his own right. I am super excited to bring this to you, and I want to personally thank Chris publicly for coming on, giving amazing value and insight, and sharing his experience and time with us, even though he certainly was not feeling well at the time of this recording. In this episode, we dive into how you don't need to do value-based pricing to run a successful business and why you don't need to meet a client at the price they want to pay. Chris shares his Pulp Fiction briefcase moment and how to build a relationship with clients that most designers and developers don't. And finally, we chat about how to level up your prices and your value after you've gained a bit of experience. So without further ado, here's Chris and myself. Hey, Feasters, welcome to another episode of Live in the Feast. My guest today is Chris Doe. He's a consultant, teacher, designer, entrepreneur, the founder of The Future, without me, a channel dedicated to creative entrepreneurs. And while he's modest and humble in his own intro, he's the founder of Blind, a brand strategy design consultancy with 20 plus years behind the business. It definitely has to be one of the longest running design agencies. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I've seen them go come and go really quick. So I'm sure it's one of the longest. And the Futures YouTube channel has over a half a million subscribers at this point in history. So I'm super excited to bring you to the show and have a chat with you. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. And thank you for pointing out that we've been one of the longest running by a single owner design motion design firms out there, like 24 years this year. Wow. Congrats. Congrats on that. Thank you so much. As somebody that has worked for some design firms and development firms that have come and pass, I know the stresses on the industry, the ups and downs and such. So 24 years is quite an accomplishment. Chris, if it's okay with you, you talk a ton about business, 
as a creative entrepreneur, as a creative professional, obviously you possess some superpower that meshes those two parts of your brain together. <laughs> uh, but that, I mean, obviously that makes you in some eyes of other designers and creative types, a bit of a unicorn, mm. right? And mm. one aspect that you talk a lot about is around pricing and value. And that's what I want to talk today about if that's okay with you. Perfect. I'm very happy to talk about that. Awesome. So let's just set the foundation here. What is the relationship between value and price? Mm, okay. So I, I think what we need to do is drill in really deep around this uh, in terminology. And I want to set the table, if you will, set the stage in terms of talking about the difference between cost, price, and value. And there are very three different things but people use them interchangeably sometimes and they mix it up. Because recently I asked my audience on Twitter, uh, how do you price based on uh, our project or value? And a surprising, shocking amount of people said value-based pricing. I was thinking, no, I don't think so. I don't mean to question my own audience, but very few people actually price based on value. So let's understand the definition. And then once we do this, I think your audience will start to understand like, oh, put yourself in one of those three categories, okay? The first one is cost, to understand what cost is. Cost is basically the sum of what it takes to produce a product or a service. So this could be labor and raw materials, but the two combined equals your cost. So a lot of people, believe it or not, price their services at cost, meaning they don't actually make a profit. So now let's introduce the idea of profit. Profit is what you make on top of what it costs you to manufacture something or the service provided. So let's take, for example, a t-shirt. A t-shirt has the raw cost of the t-shirt itself, the inks and the screen, if you're going to print it and there's labor involved in pulling that, drying it, packing it, shipping it, sending it to somebody, that's your cost. So if somebody says, how much do you charge for this? And you quote them what your costs are, you're going to find out that you're going to go out of business pretty quickly because mm -hmm. you've made no profit. Now, profit is what exists on top of cost. So this is now what we would call price. Price is cost plus profit. And there's an arbitrary amount of profit that's attached. And depending on the industry that you're in, how specialized you are, how much demand and supply exists will determine the price. And the price, and some people will describe this as market value, fair market value. So if you're on the coast and you're doing an identity design, the fair market value might be a little higher than say if you're in a very remote village somewhere in a developing country. Uh, the market value there for the same kind of work, same quality, same exact everything is going to be lower. So those things kind of expand and contract depending on a couple external forces, or they may not. For example, a luxury good. If you're going to go buy a designer, a pair of designer shoes or a handbag, they set the market price to say like, this handbag is going to be $3,000. It doesn't matter where you buy it from. And then people still buy it. So that's an interesting phenomenon because mm -hmm. they created a demand for something which they control the supply for. And this is going to give your audience a little bit of a clue as to how they need to operate if they want to make more money. Lastly is value. Okay. So price is what you pay. Value is what you get. That's a quote from Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. What you get is some kind of emotional benefit. It makes you feel fulfilled, a sense of belonging that you're cool or that you've arrived or you've made it in the world. And so this cannot be determined by the seller. It can only be determined by the buyer. 
because it's individual and it's subjective. This is why we say price the client and not the job. Yes, I love that. And it's something that I talk a lot about on this show is that, you know, the price is essentially subjective, right? You want it as high as possible and, and your client walking in the door may want it as low as possible. And it's your job as the professional to evaluate the value of the problem that your potential client has at the time to narrow that gap, to see what the problem is, to be able to come up with a solution, whether it is something that you can or can't do. And then you have the privilege of putting a price on that. How does, and this is Pandora's box, so to speak, but how does one tactfully learn how to narrow that gap when somebody approaches them and you start to evaluate the problem without bringing your own biases into the mix. Okay. There's a couple of things here. So we've talked about cost, what it takes to make something and price and prices, uh, cost plus profit. There's a couple of different strategies here. You do not have to do value-based pricing ever and still run a very successful business. I have for many, many years prior to learning value-based pricing, I would say almost two decades worth of running it, doing fixed base fees, pricing the project and not the client, okay? And I've done probably upwards of $80 million of revenue throughout the 20 plus years that I've been in business by doing this very one thing. So I don't want people to feel inadequate or less than or pressured to do value-based pricing because that's what everybody's talking about. Mm. You can run a very successful business adding a healthy chunk of profit. So let's just talk about that a little bit here. So how much profit can you add to a project? Well, it depends on who's taking the risk. So for example, when the scope is very undefined, and you have a client that doesn't make decisions quickly or easily, you may want to pad the project to have more profit or flexibility so that in case the scope expands or gets redefined or feedback comes in really late, then you can cover your costs because you don't want to go upside down. You don't want to pay the client to do the project. So you have to understand like how much risk is involved and who's willing to take the risk. When a client agrees to pay you hourly, they're saying we'll take all the risk because you'll get paid no matter what. You work 10 hours, you get paid. You work 3,000 hours, you'll get paid. So you're taking very little risk, but what you're doing is you're selling time and not the result. Now, when we get into, say, an identity design or a website, there's a finite thing that can happen. Now you're going to say, okay, well, based on my experience, this is what it's going to be priced at. Now, your client may have sticker shock. They could say, well, Chris, we didn't think it was going to be $100,000. We were prepared to pay 70000 so the natural instinct here is to try to meet somewhere in the middle. And I don't know if that's always a good place to start. I would say like, well, okay, did we get the scope wrong? They're like, no. Uh, did we underestimate the value of this to your initiative? No, no, no. It's very important for us to do. So what, where's the gap coming from? Well, we just came up with a number and a budget. Well, usually that's what it is. It's very arbitrary. Hmm. So you can make some decisions now. You could hold firm and you can say to them, it's like, and this is, I've said this before. I'm not saying that this website costs or the price is $100,000. It just is priced that way if you want us to do it. You're welcome to go and shop and find as many companies as you want to work with. And probably you'll find a range between 30 to 300. I'm not saying we're the most expensive, but I know definitely we're not going to be the cheapest. And then they get to make a decision. And what you're doing there is you're forcing them to justify to themselves why they should pay a little bit more. And in the big scheme of things, in, in terms of the effort or initiative that they're trying to resolve, it's a small price to pay. 
if it's going to yield $4 million in sales for them in the first year, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, what's the difference of $30,000? And we've all been there before. When you buy a car and they offer you an upgrade to the heads-up display or the, the fine leather or the burled walnut finish, you're like, oh, I'm already for the 45000 into it. What's another $400 to get the wheels that I want, the stereo system that I want, or the speakers? And you start tacking that on. Hmm. It's not necessarily your responsibility to meet them at the price in which they want to pay. Nowhere else in the real world do you walk into any establishment and say, what is that? Oh, I want to pay 70% of that. And then they're going to agree to you. They will say, that's mm -hmm. fine. And then there's a store down the street, go down there and see if you can get it for that. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's something that, you know, it's like you can't go to Best Buy and buy an 80 inch screen and say, I just want this for 30% of the cost or 30% of the price that's on the shelf there. You have to pay what they're asking for or either not buy it, go shop somewhere else, or wait and hope that they put it on sale. That's right. Except for this one case, you can actually negotiate with Best Buy. There are actually margins there, but you, know, <laughs> you would be absolutely right. Now, most people don't know this, but there's flexibility there. Yeah. I worked at uh, an electronics store here locally in New yeah. York, The Wiz, and it, we knew as a salesman what we could do. Like we, There was always that yeah. wall over. Every, every salesperson is told the margin, right? Yep. Always, always. So I know that you, you call yourself a business problem solver. I mean, obviously you have the, the accomplished design background, business, everything you talk about. You, I mean, you're a designer, right? I mean, that's what you fell in love with. That's what you went to school for, everything of that nature. But why the definition of a business problem solver? Well, this is where titles really matter. Titles really matter because if you're a graphic designer, you solve graphic problems. If you're an interior designer, guess what? You solve interior problems right? This is what I do. So if you're a branding designer, you solve branding. I get it, but I want to solve business problems. So I'm a business designer. I want to solve things that are going to make the greatest impact on my client's business. That could be revenue, marketing, awareness, company culture. It could be to figure out how to optimize efficiency for their company. It could be logistics. It could be a host of problems. So that's why I want to take a bigger step back and say like, what is it that's really going to move the needle for your company? And based on that, I will solve that problem. Hmm. So some folks would say that's a generalist. Yes, it is. And in this case, now I'm a strategist and I have enough knowledge of a few things, but broad knowledge of a lot of things, right? So I, I know motion graphics, I could shoot video and how to direct and storyboard and sequence and those kinds of things. I also know my way around topography, graphic design. Outside of that, my field of expertise starts to thin out quite a bit. But I know a lot about, not a lot, I'm saying I know enough about marketing, a psychology, a philosophy, just general design principles mm -hmm. that I can serve my client best by being able to sit down with them and having a conversation about what the real problem is. Mm. So have you had people or potential clients come to you that you just say, I'm not even sure why you want me to do this because I have no idea how to do it. 100%. So how do you, what have you done with those sort of clients? Watch, check this out, right? So when a client calls you, they've already determined that you possess something that they want. So you're fooling yourself if, if they call you and they're asking you to, to say, do a, a virtual reality experience for them and you have no VR experience whatsoever. Why would reasonable people whose time is very, very valuable call you up in the first place? The mistake would be to try to defend or justify, convince or persuade this prospect 
as to why you're a really good VR person. It's obvious to everybody in the room. And this is the position that many design firms get caught up in because they call, they feel like, oh, I got to do this. So my approach is exactly the opposite. So when they call and they say, you know, hey, we've got this VR experience coming up. It's just something that you're interested in. And I would say to them, full disclosure, I don't do any VR. I'm happy to help you. I'm not saying I'm not qualified to do it, but I don't have any proof of this. So I'm taking that objection off the table. Mm-hmm. And this is usually how they respond. They say something like, we love the way you think. We love how you tell stories. And we can find a lot of people who are very technically good at VR, but they can't tell stories. And they're fantastic. It's going to work really well. Mm. So I'll be a story consultant for your VR thing and somebody else will do the work, right? They're like, yes. And I've done this time and time again. We design architectural facades and interiors, and I have no background in architecture whatsoever. I'm not licensed. I haven't trained. And they're like, no problem. We'll hire an architect. You just do the concepts and we'll have them make it. Fantastic. Hmm. See, this is how it works. So we assume that we're going to be put in a defensive position. So we start acting in a defensive posture. And this is really not the way to start a relationship with a client. Right. Yeah, that's well said. I echo what Chris says 100%. First is that when a client calls you, they've already made a decision to work with you. 70% of that buying decision for that client has already been made. Secondly, they want to work with you regardless of your niche or specialty at this point. And as Chris suggests here, clearly stating upfront that you don't do what they're looking for, but being open to the conversation and hearing what they have to say and how you can help. This is a great avenue to build out different revenue streams for your business. Now, admittedly, pricing at this point may seem a little bit difficult, especially if you're not doing what they're asking for. That's why I want to invite you to check out Feast. By using the code VALUE at checkout, you can get your first month for only $20. You'll learn how to unpack the value a client has for their project, no matter what they're asking you to do, and then put a price on your solution. Chris shares a quote by Warren Buffett that says, price is what you pay, value is what you get. It's your job as a service professional to figure out what the value the client puts on the work. Feast is the community and resource hub for developers and designers ready to get off the project searching hamster wheel and actually run the business they set out to build in the first place. Feast helps position you in the market with what you do, who you help, and helps you build the processes and systems for client management, sales, marketing, delivery, and pricing. Your business isn't the same as everyone else. When you are a member of Feast, you get personalized guidance from myself. It is essential for me to meet you where you are and make sure that you are getting the exact tools and resources so that you don't get lost in the shuffle. The moment you sign up, we're going to have a chat so that I can create a custom syllabus, if you will, of resources within Feast to meet you where you are. If you're serious about not competing on price and having clients that respect you and your expertise, then I would love to see you inside of Feast. Head on over to feastcourse.com and don't forget the code VALUE at checkout for your first month, only $20. So before we get back to the pricing conversation, I have a a few questions for you. 
I like to ask all of my guests, what has been your defining moment in life so far? Oh, you personally, professionally, something else? Either, whatever you feel. Okay, I'm gonna take it to this moment here. I'm 17 years old. And prior to this point in time, I thought I was gonna go and study computer science or accounting or something super boring, what I'm supposed to do as an Asian American. Really, I think this, right? And I happened to be working at a silk screening place and the idea of, of a graphic designer still doesn't exist in my head. So I'm working at a silk screening shop and part of my duties is do whatever my boss tells me to do. So he tells me, hey, go over to Dean's place and pick up some typesetting. I don't even know what that word typesetting means, okay? I'm like, all right. And he's not too far away. I get in my car, drive over. Lives in a suburban, classic, tract home, California, uh, Northern California home. I knock on the door, opens the door. He looks at me. Dean's this big guy. He's wearing like Hawaiian shirt and shorts and his flip-flops. I'm like, this is a graphic designer. He's like, you're early. I'm like, am I? Okay. He's like, do you want to come in? Yeah, I'll come in. Beats uh, sitting in the heat in the car. I go into his house. I walk down the hallway. We turn right. And I, I got to tell you, it was a magical experience. It's almost like Pulp Fiction when um, the characters open the suitcase and it glows. Right, right? right. You know what I'm talking about? So I yep. turn the corner. I look inside his room. And it feels like it's glowing to me. And what do I see? I see the actual studio of a practicing graphic designer. He's got a couple of drafting tables. He's got these colored markers all neatly organized, a T-square, triangles, that kind of stuff. Okay, that's cool. And then sitting on a desk to my left is a beige 512K monochrome all-in-one Mac, the first or second generation Macintosh computer. And I'm like, what is that thing? Right. And he's clicking some things and he's using all this freehand or Adobe Illustrator, probably 1.0. And then he does something, he hits print, and this giant refrigerator sized laser printer starts whirling and coming to life. It's just I could feel the heat off the thing. And out of this behemoth spits out an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and it's a typeset. Oh, he puts in an envelope. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, like, what is this kind of person? What is this sorcery? And I asked him, like, what are you? He's like, I'm a graphic designer. And I said, and you work for yourself? He goes, yes, looking at me like, what is going on with this kid? And he said, do you provide for your family? Is this all that you do? He goes, yes. And he doesn't know it, but to me, this was magical. It's like a graphic designer does professional looking things, uses machinery to generate computer generated images, and you could provide for your family. So my whole worldview is just split into mm -hmm. two worlds, the world before and the world after. And now I make that determination to myself. I too will be a graphic designer. I want what he has. I want to be able to work at home. I want to have all these tools and toys and seem so professional. I want that. So that changes the trajectory of my life forever. Hmm. That's a great story. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how like you think of a, a person at that age, late teens, maybe even early 20s, you're trying to start to figure out what your life is going to look like. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing changes. It just takes a left turn. Just from an interaction with somebody, it could be good, bad, or otherwise, you know, just happenstance. Um, it's funny. I, I've asked so many people that question and so many people have shared stories where there's that one, you know, moment in time that they can they can recall of that sort of pivot in their own life journey, if you will. Awesome story, I love it. Thanks, man. And I'm either lucky or cursed enough to have 
the mindfulness, the self-awareness to know where all those beats are in my, my lifetime. Hmm. So if this were a four hour show, I would tell you the next, <laughs> the next beat, depending on what it is you wanted to know, because I, I see things with great clarity and I'm able to kind of reflect back and say, oh, wow, that's one of those uh, Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors moment where you make the train or you miss the train and your life changes. I can mm-hmm. see that. And that's why I try to be very present to the moment so that if the next Dean Walker is in my life, I could see it for what it is and know which path to go down. Mm. Yeah. And, and I've heard you say this before is that you have to be smart enough to realize that there's an opportunity in front of you. And for me, sometimes it's that opportunity that you have to pass on. Has there been those opportunities where you've really wanted to go after something, but you've, you've held back? Um, yes and no. I don't see it like exactly the way you phrased, but there are times when I made a decision and I started to think, I know that the, the road is splitting. There's a fork in the road and did I make the right decision? And when it gets painful, you think to yourself, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision. I want to go back. I want to undo. And those are your moments where your, your courage point has to be tested there. And the story is this, is that I was working in advertising before I even graduated. I was an art director. I got the corner office and was working at a mid to top level ad agency in Seattle. And I was getting paid at that time, $40,000. And that's like more money than I ever thought I was going to make annually. And this is while I was still in school and I'm doing advertising and my boss, uh, his name is Kevin Jones. He, he comes up to me. He's like, I really want you to work here. At that time, I was like feeling like, I don't know if advertising is my thing. I want to be a graphic designer. So I said to him, yeah, I'm not sure it is a good fit for me. So he's like, we'll offer you more money. Like how much? He's like 85,000. So I'm only working there a couple of months and he's already more than doubled my salary. I was like, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, think about it. I'm like, uh, so I'm not really like, super excited because money doesn't motivate me, whatever. So he comes up to me again, Chris, what if you only had to work three hours or three days a week? I'm like, oh my God, you're making it really hard for me to say no. And he's like, wait, 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 you know how much we, you know, we have so much space here. We will give you space to start your own design studio that you can run on the two days that you're not working here. Mm-hmm. And that I just asked him like, why, why would you do this for me? I'm just a, a 20 year old kid. I don't know anything about advertising. He says, well, there's two things that I like about you. Nobody does what you do here. And two, you work harder than anybody else here. So you just make everybody else look bad. And as a boss, I just want to show them there's, there's two options to work like the way you do or work like the way that they do. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to take this job. Mm. Later on, I decide I'm not going to take the job, even though they were flying me back and forth from Seattle to Los Angeles. And I have money in my pocket. I've got a corporate apartment. I've got a corporate expense account. And I'm living the life. I'm not even done with school yet. But ultimately, I decided, you know, this advertising thing, it's really not what I'm passionate about. I didn't wake up in the morning thinking about advertising. I don't go to sleep thinking about it. But I did think about design all day long. Hmm. I turned down the job. I go back to Los Angeles. And I'm, a few short months later, I'm starting my own business. And it's horrible. I'm sleeping on the floor. I'm doing projects that literally are paying me $500 for. And I'm mining the render station to make sure it doesn't crash. <laughs> and my back is hurting and there's struggles. I can't get a sales rep. Uh, I go through periods of growth and, and contraction. And I was thinking back, did I make the right decision? Can I go back or what? And so those, there are a lot of moments in life that you sit there and think, did I marry the right woman? Did I take the right job? Did I tell the right boss to screw off? Did I do everything right? 
Now there's a, there's closure to this story because many, many years later, Kevin's working at an ad agency that's down the street, literally down the street from us. I invite him over because I haven't seen him in a long time. I hug him and I'm just so thrilled to see him. And I said, Kevin, I don't regret many things in my life, but the one thing I regret, I wondered if I made the right decision was should I stayed at the agency, my life would be very different today. He looks at me like this and he's like, you know what? Never ever say that to me ever again. <laughs> you made absolutely the right decision. The whole place fell apart. Look at where you're at now. And it's just, this is, this is it. You did the right thing. Hmm. So he kind of, in a way, absolved me from my sins of arrogance and youth and stupidity. And he just washed it all away. I'm like, okay, I'll put that baby to bed because for almost 20 years, I wondered what life would have been like hmm. if I stayed there. Would I have been, would I made partners somewhere? Might, might have started another agency and would be hiring people like us and not being us. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great story. I had a, a, a similar occurrence where I had a manager, director, that I was working for and he moved on to another company and he asked, he wanted to pull me along with him and similar conversation. They offered me $50,000 and that was right out of college. And I was, you know, that was more money than I was obviously making at that point in time, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And they came back with offer after offer after offer. And I was like, they got up to $95,000. And I was like, what? Like, this is, am I still wrong in saying no? But it just wasn't what they, the job description that they threw at me wasn't what I was wanting to do. And I said to them, I said, it's not about the money. I, you know, I, I appreciate it. I'm grateful. Uh, thank you. But that's just not what I want to do. And they said, oh, that's fine you, it's a consultant's firm. You can pick and choose which projects you want to work on. You don't necessarily have to work on that. It was just your skill set fit for that project. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> so it's funny because you said that you're self-aware about moments in time in your, in your life, life. How acutely are you in tuned with your client's journeys as well. Like when you start to solve a problem that they have, can you anticipate future problems that they may not be able to see? Um, yes. And the way that we do that is actually not what the clients can't see. It's more, what are the needs of their customers? So my clients have customers. I'm not that excited about solving client problems, but I'm very excited about solving customer problems because when you can do that, you help your clients make money. So they have all kinds of internal problems. I'm not excited about that. But when they say like, we're trying to reach this type of person, I dive really deep. I understand or try to build a, an empathy map as to who this person is, what a day in their life is, activities that they're doing, their abilities, and where we are falling short to meet them. We're not anticipating their needs. So when we can do that, we can build a relationship with our customers in a way that we haven't been able to before and we'll win their loyalty, we'll win their, their patronage and, and ultimately their money and we'll grow our company and we'll be able to feed our families, et cetera. So usually clients are inside the glass jar and they can't see the label on the outside. That's where you can walk over like, huh, this is seeming like what your customers want and we seem to be able to provide it, but we don't for whatever reason, let's solve that problem. And when you can do that, you can see like you're building a relationship with your client in a way that few other vendors have been able to. So I'm not here just to do what you tell me to do. 
I want to help you understand the problem that's worth solving and aligning all the key stakeholders to get agreement on that. And then we're going to go solve that. That's the mm. trick. And that's, that's where all of that price definition comes in that what the profit might not be the most expensive on the block, but you're certainly not the least expensive on the block. And I guess from my, my perspective, from what I'm hearing is, is because of all your experience, your expertise that you've had over the course of your career, now you can quote unquote, be that luxury brand, if you will, because you could say to those that are coming $100,000 to solve this problem. What would you say to those that are maybe not brand new, but they've started their journey? They have some clients and now they want to say, hey, look, I've built up some experience and I've grown my skill set and I've grown my acumen in a business way. How do I get to that next level of pricing my services? Okay. You are a reflection or your prices are a reflection of who you are. So if you're just fairly new out of school and you've only been doing your craft for a couple of years, I don't think you've attained mastery over this yet. And that's okay. You're not supposed to be a master instantly. So I would suggest a work on that a little bit and B learn not only to speak the language of design and creativity, but learn to be bilingual, learn to speak the language of business. So you can do those two concurrently. And you're going to find that the business concerns are very different than the craft part of it. They're very, very different. So when you go into a transaction or a potential client that you have on the line, the tendency is to speak about the things that you care about and you care about what typefaces you're using, the color palette and the proportion, the scale, the legibility of the type, the latest printing techniques or the latest UX or UI trends. When your client at the end of the day doesn't care about any of that stuff, they care about the bottom line. Will I be able to grow my company or will it shrink? So you go and you start talking too much about the craft part of it, thinking that you're going to educate the client and sell them on premium design services. You're actually doing a disservice to yourself and all of your training. That's where I suggest start investing some of your time reading a few books on marketing, on business, negotiation, self-help, self-development, and start to understand the bigger things. Um, I think uh, it's name, his name is David Trott. He wrote the book, mm-hmm. One Plus One Equals Three. And he said, so here's the beautiful thing about creative people. We're able to connect dots. We're able to form relationship between things that nobody else can see. That's the gift of creativity. And the problem is we don't have enough dots to connect. They all live in a vertical space. So you'll know the difference between Helvetica, Helvetica Noia, Helvetica Now, and Helvetica Next, or whatever the different versions are, right? You know all those differences. But outside of Helvetica, you don't know anything about how to build a sales funnel or conversion ratios or cost per acquisition. You don't understand any of those things. So the dots all live in a vertical space. So the, the premise of the book is we, had, we just need more dots to connect that are horizontal versus vertical. That way, when you hear that a person is having a problem with customer service, you can say like, oh, I can connect that issue with something that I learned in web design and bring those two worlds together. When you can do that, you'll be seen as the expert, as somewhat of a creative genius because everybody else are like, well, why didn't we ever think of that? Mm. You just don't have enough dots to connect. Yeah, that was a great book. I read that book as well. Uh, so I want to be mindful of your time, obviously. So I have two final questions. I have to, I have to ask on the live streams. I 
often catch your eye looking down and it appears that you're writing, and I assume that you are. One, is that a notebook? And is there any way to see what that, what you're writing and jotting down or <laughs> anything like that? Yeah. So it is a, some form of writing. Uh, I, I write in these little pads. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fairly disposable, right? Because I don't want to get too precious with my thoughts. So I'll tell you why I write. When a guest is speaking, I don't necessarily want to cut off their thought process. So as they mention things, and people tend to do this, they make compounded statements. If this is true, then this is true, then this is true. And so we all go along that ride. And so we assume at the end, it must be true. But I write down like just what they said as part A, and I want to challenge that. So I always just write a little note to myself so I can circle back. And you'll hear me literally say, I want to circle back to this. Mm-hmm. You did this and I have a different point of view. I want to discuss this with you, right? So that's why I write. And I also have to do, uh, this is what most people don't know, I have to do quite a few things during the live stream. I'm not only engaging with the guests, I have the soundboard, I'm taking notes, I'm running a keynote presentation and I'm reading YouTube comments all at the same time, <laughs> right? So just try to imagine- it's like crazy. <laughs> you trying to do one of those things and being right. present. And I've just learned to multitask. So as I'm writing the notes or, or things to follow up on, the breadcrumbs. And so then later on, you'll also see me looking down, but it doesn't look like I'm writing anymore. It's because I'm typing that in for the summary part of the show. Mm-hmm. And I have to be able to do this while listening to them and, and reading comments and being mindful of the energy that everybody's putting out. And that's literally what I'm doing. So sometimes I keep these little scraps, but at the end of the day, the scraps have to be deciphered because I don't really write in full sentences, I write sometimes with images, little drawings mm. and diagrams, and they're just shorthand for what I need to remember to talk about. Mm. That's awesome. And that's really all that is. So somebody else would have to be like some crazy genius to be able to look at that and say, whoa, <laughs> whoa big idea there. Uh, what's a star dash dash two? I don't know. In the moment, it made a lot of sense to me. Right, right. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, because I'm always wondering, I'm like, is he, did, do you sketch you know, sketch note, do you like, is it just shorthand stuff that you, is it a timestamp? Like, I'm always curious, like of, of the mechanisms of right. what goes behind those live streams. So no, I uh, wish there were sketch notes. They can't be that pretty. If somebody else <laughs> were hosting, I could do sketch notes. Hmm, if somebody else cool. were actively reading the comments the way I like to read comments. And yes, I, I could do that. So Jonah, who's editing on the fly, he is actually doing the timestamps with the key ideas. Hmm. Right. So he can do that. And usually the third person in the ring with us is reading the, the comments as they go by and saving them up so that it doesn't interrupt the flow. Mm. So when they feel like this is a good point to insert that question, then they do. So everybody's got their job. I just happen to have a couple extra jobs. Awesome. Hey, a couple. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like you did eight arms to do all that stuff. <laughs> some people even ask me, is somebody feeding me these graphics? Like, Nobody fed me the graphics. I'm working on keynote right now while we're talking. I know. I, I mean, I caught on that, that you, you kind of build those slides on the fly. And um, I just, just, I'm like, this is awesome. Like I, I couldn't do that well enough. And a designer nonetheless is doing this. So it's like as a perfectionist, right? Like right. you might want like, oh, this doesn't look right, but then I got to pay attention over here. And so it's, I, I commend you for all the work Thank that you, you do. There's one other little story here. Cause sometimes my guest would say, oh, uh, John Smith wrote this book on blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, what? So then I have to go on Amazon while he's talking and do John <laughs> Smith and just find blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, I think that's the one. And then read it like, that is the one. So I can save the link and then type it in for people. Because they always want to know, like, what was the book that was mentioned? 
because it's impossible mm. to figure out as they're saying it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, everyone that's listening, if you haven't already yet checked out, go to the Futures Without Any YouTube channel, check out some of those live streams, mm -hmm. check out all of the content there. It's The team is amazing. I mean, obviously they look like they're just going to follow you off to the end of the cliff, but you know, it's great content. It's all for creative professionals. So yes, a lot of design stuff, but us developers, writers, it all fits. If your business is in the creative place, that's where you want to go check it out because there's tons of business learning to be had there. Before I let you go, mm -hmm. uh, what's up next in the next six to 12 months? Mm, oh, that's a good question. So uh, I'll give you this in, in, in many bite-sized pieces in terms of like how to answer this question. What's up next is that we get to be in business every single month only if we meet our quarter, right? Because this is all bootstrap, self-funded, and there isn't a trust fund. There isn't this giant pile of money that somebody just gave me. So we're building the business model as we're in the business model, so to speak. So for us, it's very important for us to hit our financial goals every single month and quarter. We're a little bit behind. And if all goes well, we will hit these numbers. And last year, December of 2018, will have been the last month we've ever done client work. And it hopefully will be that way forever. Mm. I no longer wish to do client work. I only want to create content. So we have to keep making money. So there's always this pressure, like, do we need to release new products, run new campaigns? How do we grow our audience? We know that there are a lot more creative human beings out there that have watched our content than that have actually purchased our content. I think our lifetime customers is somewhere under 10,000, whereas we have half a million followers on YouTube, 80,000 on Facebook. So where are these people? Like who's going to help make the future possible as we try to, as much as possible, document and teach people the business of creativity and even tutorials on design for as little money as possible. So that's, that's the challenge. And we, we need to hit our numbers because we like to grow as human beings and we're no different as an organization. We need to get to 800,000 subs and then pass a million subs. And it's a lot of work because you start to tap into your audience. And in order to grow at that pace, you have to find a new audience. And now we're experimenting with different formats. You, we're seeing Young Guns episode or season two. We've just finished episode four of building a brand, which is kind of like our version of design reality TV, which we've never seen anywhere else, where we get into the behind the scenes and do the nitty gritty to teach people what's going on. And so we'll continue to make more content. Probably the direction that we're heading now is more scripted, edited pieces of content along with some really freakishly long, raw, uncensored live streams. I think those two combinations mm. have been working well for us. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see what, what what's next, obviously. Um, and the live streams is what I love to see. Like produce stuff, yes, that's great. Uh, for me, just personally, I like the raw, unedited kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and you guys do it smoother than anybody else. So <laughs> I, I love it. Thank you. See, you're part of our core audience, see? Now you'll, you'll, you'll show up for that. But a lot of people are like, oh, it's too long. And what's the point? And the mm. attention span of people are like getting shorter and shorter until it'll be like the attention span of a gnat. So yeah. we don't want to be foolish in that if we're trying to grow our audience, we need to bring people in through different vehicles, shorter bite-sized pieces of content. That's what they're asking for. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm 41, so I'm still old school in this game. So mm -hmm. it's like, I, I could sit there for an hour yeah. <laughs> and watch that. Mm -hmm. but awesome, Chris. Well, thank you very much. I know what you're going to say, but where can people reach out and say thanks? 
Okay, you guys can find us just about anywhere on any social platform except for Snapchat. We produce a YouTube show. It's youtube.com slash the future is here. Jason's reminded you there's no E in the future. Drop the E go. So it's gone. The future is here. You can find us also on Twitter. I'm at the Chris Doe. That's my name. Also, also on Instagram and on Facebook, you can find out about events, uh, accompanying talks, and just things that we find interesting in the design business world on Facebook. So that would be facebook.com slash the future is here. You'll be able to find us there. Awesome. Again, thank you for all your time and experience today. Um, I know I got a ton of value out of it and I know the audience will too. And for those of you listening at home until next time, it's your time to live in the feast. Next week, we'll be back with David Kilkelly, who is going to share with us how to leverage LinkedIn video as an asset for your business that will help you increase your prices. Until then, it's your time to live in the feast. Mm -hmm.